Hey, good morning. It is so good to be together with you again this morning in a different way, but it's almost getting normal, right? But it is not normal. Uh, it won't last forever, trust me. But I'm glad that you're joining us today. I really hope you've been here since uh, uh, about 10 o'clock or a little bit before. If you've been with us this whole time, you've already been blessed. I know you have. Um, it's so encouraging to see the videos that were made, the, the children that are moving up. I so appreciated Robbie and his energy and um, his thoughts and the prayer that he shared with us. Daryl taking us back to the cross, reminding us that we're living in troubled times, that Jesus is the answer. I hope you've been singing along at home with uh, our, our praise team, even some of those songs that you might not know so well. I hope at least you were paying attention to the words. Some really powerful, encouraging messages uh, in those words. So wherever you are today, whatever time zone you might be in right now, glad that you've chosen to, to spend some time with us as we spend some time in God's Word and spend some time talking and thinking about God and the blessings that He's given us. And I want to begin with a story, uh, a true story, in my history. When I was in high school, way back when, I was uh, a player on the Penns Manor High School basketball team. Now, I would like to tell you that I was kind of the star player on the Penns Manor varsity basketball team. And I would like to tell you that our team was one of the best teams in the county my senior year. But here's the funny thing about this whole live stream deal. I've been sharing this on my Facebook page, and some of my high school friends have actually jumped on and watched some of the services. I think just to actually see if Tim Stutzman really did become a preacher, I'm sure some bets have been lost on that. But they would be the first to tell you, and they would jump on and say, you know, Tim was just pretty much an average athlete on a very average team, but we did have fun. During my senior season, toward the end of the year, we traveled to our heated rivals gym to play them, the, the Homer Center Wildcats. And I'm not even exactly sure why they were our rivals, because they always beat us so badly at basketball. They'd already beat us by like 20 points in our own gym, and now we're going there. And before we go out on the court, our coach gets us together in the locker room, and he says, listen, as the visiting team we get to choose which end of the court we're going to uh, warm up on. I want you to go out, and I want you to warm up on the far end of the court. So we leave the locker room, we jog out on the court, and Homer Center is already warming up on the far end of the court, so we get on the near end of the court and going through our little three-man weave. Our coach walks out of the locker room. He is livid. He calls us all together. I thought I said I wanted you warming up on that end of the court. And somebody said, hey, coach, they were out here first. They were already warming up. It doesn't matter. We're the visiting team. We get to choose. Now somebody go down there and tell them to move. And everybody in the huddle turned and looked at me. And I'm like, what are you looking at me for? Tim, you got to go. No, I don't. you got to do it. I don't have to. Tim, it's got to be you. So I walked down to the other end of the court. Their, their coaches, their backs kind of to me. Now, Homer Sitter was one of the best teams in the county. And I thought, well, I'll talk to the coach. He's got to be nice, right? So I said, excuse me, coach. Yeah. Um, we would like to warm up on this end of the court. His response to me was, 
good for you. And turn back around. So I'm looking back, you know, my team's back there, and I said, uh, Coach, I'm sure you know that as the visiting team, we get to choose which end of the court we warm up on. Now, I've got to tell you, I have no idea if that was a rule. I had never heard it before. I have never heard it since. I'm pretty sure my coach made that up. I'd never heard of it. I don't think that coach had ever heard of it. But he turns and looked at me and he said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I am sure I don't want to do this. But my coach really wants me to. And he said, you know, we're going to destroy you to your team tonight. I said, yes, sir, I know that. My team knows that. Everybody here knows that. And he said, I was going to go a little easy tonight. I was going to play a lot of my backups. But you know what? I'm going to play my starters the whole game. We're going to run you out of this gym. I said, yes, sir. I understand that. But you still want us to move? Yes, sir. So he calls his team together. They go down to the other end. We go to the far end. We warm up. The buzzer sounds. We get in our little huddle before the game. Our coach comes up and he steps into the huddle and he said, boy, he didn't look very happy. And I said, no, he wasn't very happy. And then my coach asked, what did you say to him? So here's four other guys looking at me. My coach is looking at me. What did you say to him? What did I say to him? I told him, you got 30 seconds to get your sorry team off our end of the court because we're warming up down here. Now get going. And everybody in the huddle goes, yeah, Stutz, way to go, yeah. Said, That's right, you're messing with the wrong Pinsman or Comet tonight, buddy. Now, <laughs> I would like to tell you that we got so in their heads that night that our little ragtag team actually pulled off this traumatic upset but I can't tell you that either. They ran us out of the gym. It was over in the first three minutes. I, I, I think they doubled our score that night. It was, it was ugly. But it did create a memory. And I was reminded of that memory this week as I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we tell our children when they're young, if something's not yours, you can't have it. If something doesn't belong to you, you can't take it. But I think as adults, sometimes we need to be reminded, especially as Christians, we need to be reminded, if something's been given to us, we need to claim it. If we are to be in possession of something, if something's been handed to us, we ought to go ahead and claim it. You might remember a couple weeks ago, uh, I preached a sermon uh, and I talked about... Um, trust. And I did it through the lens of Moses. This is actually sort of part two of that sermon. Uh, I took a little time off there and talked about light and darkness, but, but this morning I want to talk about obey. Trust and obey. See what I did there? See why the singer sang that song, trust and obey. And I want to go back to the Old Testament uh, again this morning. And I want to look at this idea of obedience through the life of one of my favorite Old Testament characters, a guy by the name of Joshua. I don't know if he's my favorite Old Testament character, but he's certainly on Mount Rushmore for me, uh, Joshua. You know, if you're a person who likes action movies, you like the story of Joshua. 
If you like the idea of, a, of somebody overcoming obstacles, kind of an underdog, you'll like this, the story of Joshua. Someone who kind of a little bit larger than life kind of personality. That's Joshua. He has an amazing story. He was a slave, a soldier, a servant, a spy, a successor. Joshua was a man's man. But most importantly, he was God's man. And Joshua knew a thing or two about taking what was promised to him. Let's take a look at the text. Um, Joshua chapter 1 is where we're going to be reading from this morning. By the way, if you have been reading along with our uh, Bible Interactive group, you just read this this past week. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. In those five verses, God makes some very significant promises to Joshua. God tells Joshua that he, God, would give them, the Israelites, the land. Why is the land so important to God in the story? If you were to read through the entire book of Joshua, And if you were to underline that phrase, the land, every time it referred to the promised land, you would underline 87 phrases. All the the way through this book, God keeps referring to, the people keep referring to the land, the land, the land. Why was the land so important? Well, that land, the promised land, was promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. For some reason, God wanted His people in this specific place. God promises it to Abraham, and now he's giving it to the Israelites who are being led by Joshua. And so in Joshua chapter 1, we see God coming to Joshua and telling him, it's time to convert the promise into possession. It's time to quit talking about it. It's time to quit dreaming about it. It's time to, to, to quit thinking about it. It's time to go take the land. It's time to cross the river into the the promised land. It's time for you to to go to that end of the court and take what belongs to you. It's time to possess the land. Look again in verse 3. God told Joshua, I will give you every place you set your foot. Remember in the movie Forrest Gump where... Lieutenant Dan shows up at Forrest and Ginny's wedding, and he's not in a wheelchair anymore. Now he's standing on prosthetic legs. And Forrest comes up and says, Lieutenant Dan, you have magic legs. Here in Joshua, God promises Joshua magic feet. He tells Joshua, I will give you everywhere your feet walk. 
He tells them, no one will be able to stand up to you all the days of your life because I'll be with you. He tells Joshua, you go, I'll give. You fight, I'll win. You obey, I'll bless. Just one problem. For the Israelite people, there's just one problem. Hey, uh, God, this promised land, um, there's already people living in that promised land. And they don't want to leave. They don't want us coming into their land. And you know what? They're pretty big. And they're pretty strong. And they're living in fortified cities. And they look like they could be a problem, that end of the court. You know, there's a real good chance all we're going to do is make them mad. There's a real good chance this thing could be over pretty quickly. This morning, I want to ask you a couple questions. And I want to do it through the context of Joshua and the Israelites entering the promised land. And the first question is this. Are you willing to take what God wants to give? Are you willing to take what God wants to give? If you go back and remember the context of what we've just read in Joshua chapter 1, you probably already know, this isn't the first time that the Israelites were on the doorstep of the Promised Land. They'd already been there once before. They'd been there almost four decades earlier. And at that point, Moses was still leading the people, and Moses sends 12 spies in to check out the land. And if you remember, Joshua and his friend Caleb were two of those spies. Of those 12 spies, 10 of those spies came back and said, Wow, that is some land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. That would be a wonderful place for us to settle. It would be a wonderful place for us to live, but it's not going to happen. There's giants living in the land. Their cities are large. Their cities are walled. Ten of those spies come back and say, we can never take that land. Let's go home. And if you remember... That angered God. And God had his people basically wander in the wilderness for four decades. And then God also told his people, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the entire generation that walked out of Egypt would not walk into the promised land. So for the next 40 years, you know what Joshua and Caleb got really good at doing? They got really good at going to funerals. All those people that walked out of Egypt with them, all those people that walked across the Red Sea on dry land, all those people that marched with them and fought with them, they all died one by one. And Joshua and Caleb just went to one funeral after another. Why? Why did God react that way? It was because God was in the process of raising up a generation that was going to take what God himself wanted to give. God was waiting for a generation to come up that was going to take what he wanted to give them. And you know what? I think he's still waiting. I think he's still doing that. 
I think God is still looking for a generation that's going to take what God has offered, that has the courage and the faith to take what He wants us to have. God is still leading us into new areas of possession. God is still leading us into new areas of conquest. There is a place where God wants us to be. And I don't think we're there yet. Which leads me to my second question for you to consider. What generation do I belong to? What generation do I belong to? And when I say generation, I'm not talking about an age group. I'm talking about a mindset. Do I belong to the generation that's fearful? Do I belong to the generation that's complacent? Do I belong to the generation that, you know, I'd rather just wander around in circles than step out on faith. I'd rather do what we've always done, even though it's not very fulfilling, and even though it's certainly not very joyful, but at least it's comfortable. Am I part of the generation that I call God my God, I worship God, I study the Bible, but I'm pretty happy just to kind of go around in circles. I'm pretty happy to do what I've always done. And I never do take one step into the promised land. Now, I think the sad truth is too many Christians don't possess what God's already given them. Too many Christians are living so far beneath their privilege. And the sad fact is, they don't even know it. No, when you go back and, and look at the story of Joshua, you think about the land that God promised Joshua. He said, from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, the great sea on the west. That's a lot of land. Look at a map. That's almost 300,000 square miles of land. Do you know how much land the Israelites possessed under Joshua? Would it surprise you if I told you that it wasn't quite 300,000 square miles? Would it surprise you if I told you it was only really a tenth of that? It was about 30,000 square miles that the Israelites... Uh, uh, controlled under Joshua. It wasn't until David and Solomon come along that the Israelites actually uh, take possession of the land that God intended them to have. And I think that illustrates truth. And the truth being, you can possess something and not possess it. You say, no, you can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. But it's true. You can possess something and still not possess it. Let me give you a couple examples. In my office, there is one wall that is covered in a bookcase. On that bookcase are a whole lot of books. I don't hardly have room for any more. Most of those books are books that I've purchased, but a whole lot of those books are books that people have given to me. What do we give Tim? I don't know. Give him a book. Now, here's a book. I, I enjoyed it. Maybe you'll like it. Here's a book I think you ought to read. People are giving me books all the time. A lot of the books on my bookshelf, I've read multiple times, 
But there's a lot of books on my bookshelf I've never read once. I'm going to get to it one of these days, but I've never sat down and read the book. So I possess the book, but I don't really possess the book, do I? It hadn't done me any good. I'll give you another example. My wife is really good at finding and clipping coupons. We have coupons all over our house. You know what neither one of us are very good at doing? Redeeming coupons. I hate to redeem coupons. It is not worth it to me. I I won't do it. And so I'm always fighting her on this. Don't bring the coupons. Leave the coupons. And they're, they're scattered all over the house. But we get where someplace where we're getting ready to buy something. We had a coupon for this. I don't know. I don't have the coupon. I put on a pair of dress pants a couple weeks ago. I pulled out a coupon from Boston Market for a free meal. It expired in January. It's how long it's been since I had those pants on, I guess. I was in possession of a free meal at Boston Market. Think about that. I never got the free meal. It was promised to me, but I never enjoyed it. I never took advantage of it. I never took possession of the very thing I possessed. I wonder how many of us have never claimed the possessions that God wants us to have. The gift has been given but we've never unwrapped it. The New Testament book of Ephesians is quite often called the Joshua of the New Testament because there's a lot of similarities between the two books. Paul in Ephesians talks a lot about gifts that God has given and how to access those gifts. Let me refer you to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, and those blessings are found in Christ. The peace that we all long for, the joy that we always think about and long for, the love that, that we want to feel and that we want to share, the contentment, the freedom from anxiety. The, the community, you know, of a family of believers. All of those things belong to us because of Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. But guess what? I know Christians who don't have that kind of joy. And they're not feeling that kind of peace. And they're, they're, they're racked with, uh, you know, anxiety. And they're longing for some kind of connection and community. Why? Because they haven't claimed what Jesus died to give us. I know Christians who are unhappy in their life. Maybe it's a lot like this story. You've probably heard it before. It's a true story. Back in 1915, a, a man by the name of Ira Yates traded a a fairly successful family business for 17,000 acres in West Texas, which sounds like a pretty good swap 
until you realize that the 17,000 acres that he traded for were some of the driest, most barren, most desolate land in all of Texas and all of America for that matter. But Ira Yates was convinced he could be a rancher. So he tried raising cattle on his acreage. All of his cows died. Then he tried raising sheep on the same land. All the sheep died. Then he said he would raise crops, but there was no way he was going to raise crops on that land. It was too dry, it was too barren, there was nothing there. It was said that even a crow knew better than to fly over his land. So then he decided, I'll just have to sell my land. He couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted that worthless land. For 11 years, Ira Yates and his family lived in terrible poverty, almost starving to death. He kept approaching the Transcontinental Oil Company, trying to get them to, to drill an exploratory well on his land, but they were convinced there's no oil west of the Pecos River. Until October of 1926, when he finally convinced the oil company to drill a, drill, uh, drill a well uh, on his land, and they discovered the largest deposit of oil in the continental United States, the Yates Field. They're still getting oil out of the Yates Field. And overnight, Ira Yates went from severe poverty to being one of the richest men in America. And all that time, he'd been sitting on those resources, but he was living in poverty. As Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, Jesus wants to lead you into what God wants you to have. Peter tells us that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Paul tells us that those blessings are found in Christ. But here's something you're going to have to understand. Those blessings, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to fight for what God has, has given you. You know, those children of Israel getting ready to enter the promised land, that was their land. God had promised them that. But like I said, there was already people living there. And they didn't want to leave. And those Canaanites didn't send a message to Joshua saying, okay, we know you want this land. Give us a few days and we'll get out of here and you can enjoy yourselves. Absolutely not. Joshua, the children of Israel, they had to fight for the land that God wanted them to have. We're going to have to do the same thing. Stay in the book of Ephesians for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says, we have an enemy. There's an enemy that we're going to have to fight, and the enemy is not me. And the enemy is not you. And the enemy is not some other group of people. The enemy is not some political party. The enemy is not the media. It's not some church down the street. In fact, the enemy is not even flesh and blood. Paul says that the enemy is the powers of this dark world. 
Our struggle is against spiritual forces of evil. Our enemy is Satan. And Satan is standing between you and what God wants you to have. Satan is standing between where you are and the blessings and the gifts that God wants you to enjoy. If we're going to experience those blessings, if we're going to claim those gifts, we're going to have to follow Jesus in the battle. And again, make no mistake who the enemy is. Yes, Jesus Christ, we have peace. In Christ, we have joy. In Christ, we have love. In Christ, we have belonging. We have hope. But there's a couple things we need to remember. One, Satan's going to fight. Satan's going to put up a fight to keep us from having what God wants us to possess. And secondly, he is not going to fight fair. He's going to lie. He's going to manipulate. He's going to deceive. But here's the good news. He's already lost. Jesus has already won. Just like God told the uh, Israelites, I'm going to go before you. No one's going to stand against you. God promised Joshua, you're going to be successful because I'm fighting this battle for you. In the same way, we've got a battle to possess and enjoy what God has given us. Which brings me to a third question for you to consider this morning. What have you been allowing Satan to keep that God wants you to have? What is it in your life that you've been allowing Satan to have possession of that God wants you to have possession of? Or maybe a a different way to ask that question is, what side of the river are you living on right now? Are you living in the promised land? You look around and you say, you know, there are things in my life that, yeah, there's struggles and there's difficulty, but boy, I look at situations, I look at relationships, I, I look at obstacles and And in hindsight, it was God. It was God that that brought me here, and it was God that got me through. Yeah, there's some difficulties, and life is is difficult, but but God has blessed me in so many ways. And you just feel like you're, you're living a life of meaning and fulfillment. Or do you feel like you're camped on the other side of the river? I don't feel any of that. I talk about the promised land. I teach classes about the promises. I teach my children about the promises. Sometimes I even pretend that I'm enjoying the promises. But the truth is, I don't have the courage to cross the river. I don't have the courage to trust God to do what He said He would do. I don't have the courage to stand and take what God wants me to have. Which leads to my last question. Isn't it time to stop allowing Satan to decide how much land we get to have? Isn't it time that we stop allowing the enemy to decide when, where, and how we're going to live our lives? And you think about what uh, God did for Joshua and what God told Joshua. He said, you be strong. You be courageous. I'm going to go before you. 
And we say, God, that's a lot easier said than done. And it is. I get it. But God told Joshua, you trust me. You obey me. God told Joshua, I'm going to give you this land. Now, it's God's integrity that's on the line, right? God said, I'm going to give you the land. It's God's word that's on the line. God told Joshua, obey me and you're going to prosper. Obey me and you're going to be successful. Now, it's God's promises that are on the line. It's God's power that's on the line. Those promises didn't come from Joshua. They came from God. Notice how chapter 21 of Joshua ends. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Every single promise of God was fulfilled. No one stood against the Israelites because God went before the Israelites. God has always been a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. His track record is perfect. Let me wrap up by reminding you of a very important fact. There is still a lot of land out there that Satan's sitting on that he has no claim to. Satan still has land that doesn't belong to him. And when I say land, I'm not talking about physical land. I'm talking about spiritual turf. You think of the places where Satan is standing that he has no business to stand. Maybe it's in your marriage that Satan has taken some land that doesn't belong to him. And you need to fight to get that land back. Maybe in your family there's some things going on and Satan's claimed some land that he doesn't get to claim. We think again, uh, this week we are so sadly reminded of what's going on in our nation. The events of Minneapolis and, and the reaction to that. That is land that Satan doesn't get to get. Satan doesn't belong in that land. And as Christians, it is our mission to stand and to fight for what is right. And to stand with those who have been wronged. And Jesus tells us that the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. And anytime I see someone stealing, anytime I see someone killing or destroying, that's not God. That's the enemy. And as Christians, we've got to have the faith to trust God and to fight for what God is, is, is giving us. To stand with each other, to stand with God. There's a lot of land left to be taken. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. That you say, you know, I need to take that land back. But if you're honest with yourself, I bet you do. I bet you know where you've allowed Satan to camp. And God says you're going to have to drive him out. And I don't know exactly what it is you need to do today. But if you're honest with yourself, I bet you do.
I bet when you put your head on your pillow at night, you know what God's calling you to do. You know how God's calling you to respond. You know that God is calling you to trust. That God is calling you to obey. You know that God is telling you, you be strong. You be courageous. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the faith to be strong and courageous? Not because of our strength or our ability, but because of yours. Father, would you give us the confidence to be willing to take what you want us to have? We've allowed the enemy to lay claim to areas of our life that that belong only to you. Father, may we put on the full armor. May we stand where you've called us to stand. Father, we think about all the, the things that are going on around us. We're in the middle of this virus and so many uncertainties and so much fear. Father, I pray that you would calm our fears, that you would help those who are searching for a cure and an answer. Father, as we think about what's going on in our nation right now with just the tension and the division, Father, we turn that to you. Would you heal our land? And would you help us to be agents of that healing? Father, through Jesus, the victory's been won. May we live our lives as more than conquerors, as we trust and as we obey. It's in your Son's name that I pray. Amen.